Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, the director of CT Media, and today we have a special edition of the show, The Bono Interview. About five or six months ago, I got a phone call from one of our editors here at CT, asking how much I knew about you 2 He's got a memoir coming out, they said, and we might have the opportunity to interview him for the magazine. We want somebody who knows this world, knows U2's music. Would you be interested? And I had this kind of flashback moment. I was 12 or 13 years old, sitting in front of a stereo, listening to the Joshua Tree over and over. And then maybe a couple of years after that, sitting there still, but with a guitar in my hands, trying to figure out what The Edge was doing. And I can think about all the decades since, the U2 records and the way they were landmarks in my life. Of course, I'm not alone. You don't last in the popular consciousness without moving people on that kind of level. Obviously, I said yes. Then, one day in early October, an advanced copy of his memoir showed up on my front steps. And about a week later, we sat down for this conversation. That interview was the cover story for our December issue, so it's been a couple of months. But we wanted to share the entire interview with our Bulletin listeners today. Let's kind of start with the book, actually. I'd love to know what what motivated you to, to do this. I mean, that's an, a massive investment. I understand it took six, seven years to put it together. What drove you into this? I think I wanted to explain myself to myself. Hmm. I wanted to explain what I've been doing with my life to my family and friends and fans of the band. But I also want to explain to the family what I've been doing with their life because Mm. it was they that permissioned me to be away, whether it was the traveling circus that was you too as we toured the world, my activism, which meant I was, you know, jumping out from behind curtains to finance ministers around the world and lawmakers and opinion makers. I wanted them to to understand what I was doing with my life at Mm. at a more detailed level. And actually, strangely, at home, you know, for all the most extraordinary experiences I've had, we don't really talk about them at the at the kitchen table as much as you'd think, because it might weigh down the the breakfast or the lunch or the dinner, or it might, it more often would lift uh, their spirits, but but occasionally you Mm -hmm. just didn't want to bring up, particularly the start of the Mm -hmm. campaigning for uh, universal access to AOVs. Mm -hmm. Um, That was hard to tell 
um, the kids about. But but also your fans, you know, so that they knew it wasn't superficial. And, you know, that awkwardness where they see the singer of their band shaking hands with somebody they just really didn't like. <laughs> um, and the, the sort of cringing that would come. I just, I wanted them all to know what we've been up to mm-hmm. in One and in Red and all the other bands I formed, mm-hmm. um, as well as the group that gave me the start to speak about these issues, which was you too. Yeah, there's a, there's a real spirit of gratitude in the book that I think is is very moving. But there's also this sense of, you know, kind of a haunted, there, there's a sense that you're haunted by ghosts in the story. Your origin story, I mean, Ireland in the midst of, you know, the troubles. And then just the year 1974, you know, there's the bombing attack in May that you barely survived. September, you lose your grandfather and your mother. That seems to be a springboard from the way you describe it in the book. I wonder if you could just talk about how how that shaped and drove where the music went and, and what drove you into them. I mean, it seems to have sort of driven you into the band in the next couple of years. Yeah. Was it T.S. Eliot's? Was it Little Gidding? The end is where we start <laughs> in the four quartets. You know, 1974 took my mother away from me, uh, my grandfather, but gave me so much in return because the wound that opened up in my life became this kind of void that I filled with music and friendship and really in an ever-increasing faith Hmm. as the Welsh evangelist Smith Wigglesworth uh, (laughs) would tell you. Now, how do I even remember Smith Wigglesworth? But I do. That just came out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was, of course, my mother collapsed as her own father was being lowered into the ground. And I never spoke with her again. Um, I saw her a few days later in her hospital bed as she took her last breaths. But Mm. um, I mean, people have gone through a lot worse. And I've spent any extra time I've had in my life trying to make sure that people don't lose their mothers hmm. unnecessarily or their fathers or their cousins. Or their cousins. But death is ice cold water on a boy mm-hmm. entering puberty. And yes, T.S. Eliot is right. The end is where we start. If you begin your meditation mm-hmm. uh, on life often at that kind of moment. I mean, we're all really in denial Mm-hmm. for most of our life, that we're finite in our earthly presence. And some mm-hmm. of us believe we will uh, have an eternal life, you know, once we shake off the mortal coil. And I'm not jumping into that uh, now, but uh, when the time comes, I'd like to think I'm ready for it. And if I am, it probably started with my mother's passing in 1974. You mentioned this in the book. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a classic, unfortunately, sort of rock origin story. You lose <laughs> your mother. But not only that, you have this contentious relationship in certain ways with your dad. You know, you describe various levels of disconnect. And 
one of the things I couldn't help but think about, I wrote it in the margins a number of places. You know, they talk about, in psychology, they talk about anger being this secondary emotion that underneath that is grief and sadness and the struggle to sort of get that grief, get that longing out into the world. It just struck me, for one thing, you know, you describe this lifelong war with anger in yourself and often with <laughs> with the people around you. The, the fights with the band, some of those stories I found very surprising and, and funny at times. <laughs> um, but I think the thing that struck me the most as I read it is, you know, you have this gravity, you have this origin story, and then you have this gravity towards it's this moment in, in music history with punk music and, and the rise of that, especially in the UK. And you even have this quote, um, the fears and specters under my pillow are the reasons I sometimes don't want to get out of bed. I don't know yet that rock and roll, punk rock in particular, will prove my liberation. That that will end my occupation. And then a couple pages later, you say this, and I kind of love it. You're talking about writing out of control, and you said, uh, it dawned on me, and Fyodor Dostoevsky may have had a hand in this, that we humans have little or no influence on the two most importance of our life, being born and being dying. That felt like the right kind of fuck you to the universe that a great punk rock song requires. But here's what strikes me, because if you look at what else is happening in music, you know, the Sex Pistols are singing about how there's no future. The Clash is singing that there's no reason. You know, Stiff Little Fingers is regularly singing about rebellion and anarchy. And yet, U2, you know, comes out of this sort of post-punk era with a profoundly, like, vulnerable, sincere, even in the darker threads in your lyrics... They don't read like despair, they read like lament. And underneath lament, there's always a certain kind of hope. So what, it, what struck me was like the, the idea of punk is sort of rebellion. You have this trauma in your background, you have this, this sense of loss, and it was almost like hope itself. I don't know if this rings true, but I mean, it was hope itself was a rebellious act in that world and in that time. That's a beautiful that line, Mike. Um, uh, a beautiful phrase you might have just coined, but, you know, just behind lament often lurks hope. The grief becomes a kind of invocation, isn't it, to be filled. And the emptiness, your emptiness, is this prayer to be filled. Punk rock uh, prayers, yeah, that's probably what they were. <laughs> and it was an amazing time, punk rock, because... You know, Stiff Little Fingers were a band from Northern Ireland and they spoke about an alternative Ulster. And they had a great guitar line that I think really influenced Edge. It went, ding 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 like that. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, da, dun. And um, alternative Ulster was one they were, wanted to create in their imagination. You know, Alternative Ulster was a place, you know, of a thousand bands. You know, it was, they, they didn't care what religion you subscribed to. You know, it was just a place of imagination, the Alternative Ulster. We meet in these places of imagination. And they really inspired me. And The Clash inspired me to think about what was going on in the wider world and the injustice. And, you know, Joe Strummer singing, Know Your Rights. You know, I thought, oh, yes, yeah, you should know your rights, shouldn't you? What are they again? <laughs> and and you, you really should know them uh, if they're about to be taken away. And the civil stru rights struggle in Ireland, you know, was just 
up the road. But finally, I suppose what we rebelled are against in you too was something a little more elliptical, a little more obtuse, a little maybe harder to follow for some. But we were rebelling against ourselves. We were discovering that the greatest opponent we would come up against was likely to be ourselves, our own development. And that you can pick a fight with the establishment, and you probably should, but we were sort of interested in a different kind of battle. And, you know, I had a Bible, and I remember highlighting, is it Ephesians 6? For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities, or therefore, whatever it is, therefore, take up the full armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel of peace. I'm not sure I'm remembering that, but it it made a huge impression on me. Hmm. And as an 18, 19-year-old, I thought, that's the real fight that's going on. The rest is an expression of that. By the way, I didn't think religious people understood their own scripture Mm -hmm. because they were often using their religion, certainly in Ireland, as a club to beat the the others down. I mean, the Catholics and Protestants, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous uh, if you think about it, but not in in the 70s and uh, in Ireland. But yeah, we we picked a more interesting fight. Mm -hmm. There's a lyric, uh, spare me from... You know, um, earnest Irish rock singers <laughs> quoting their own lyrics. But the reason I'll allow myself this is I probably won't remember it, <laughs> which is an occasion for comedy. But there's a song on No Line on the Horizon called Cedars of Lebanon. And I think it's choose your enemies carefully because they will define you. Hmm. Um, make them something because they, in some ways, they mind you. And then it goes... Um, They weren't there at the beginning, but they'll be there at the end. Sometimes they'll last with you longer than your friends. Hmm. And I think what you two probably got right was we just picked a fight with a much more interesting enemy than the more obvious for punk rock, which was the man, whatever the man (laughs) was. And, um, you know, even that sounds very old fashioned, doesn't it? The man. (laughs) Um, the men it was probably Mm -hmm. a much better way of putting it the patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) well I mean that gets me to something else that's my daughters are picking a fight with yeah that gets me to something else I think is interesting is um, you talk about picking fights right so there's a painter an artist named Makoto Fujimura um, oh ah (laughs) beautiful yeah extraordinary Pictures, meditations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, well, he's, he's got this framework for thinking about like faithful presence for Christians in the world. And he, it's the contrast he makes between, you know, culture as a, as a war and culture as a garden. And that the impulse, particularly among evangelicals, and obviously our audience is, is a lot of evangelicals, but our, the impulse that has really marked the church for 40, 50 years has been this war. And I think what's interesting about you two, and furthermore, the your activism that comes later, is the degree to which you're doing war, like you say, like it's not necessarily culture war. 
and particularly with the activism, these steps you take across political lines that you know may have upset your fans. But it was about this idea of creation as a garden, making beautiful things, bringing beauty, bringing life to the places that you could. Was that something that was intuitive? Was it reactive? I love the idea of, of creativity coming out of creation, because of course it's the same thing. The creator and creativity have always been indivisible for me. And that's where it comes from. And, you know, the spirit moves across the water. That spirit, that's what we're waiting for in the studio. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for mm -hmm. that. We're waiting for the same spirit. And, yeah, artists giving expression to the inexpressible. I mean, that's just obvious to me. That's what we're, we're, we're trying to do. You know, Van Morrison sings about the inarticulate speech of the heart. Mm -hmm. You know, Rothko, I remember with Ali and I on our, I think it was her 23rd birthday, we went to the Tate. It wasn't the Tate Modern, so it would have been before that was built. And there was a Rothko room. And I had no idea, you know, where, where Rothko was coming from. I just felt something from those paintings. And I felt lifted by them. And then, you know, we, we were fascinated by Turner and, and they, you know, one is completely abstract expressionist. The other is, you know, figurative. But you can see that Turner longs to be an abstract expressionist and he's using the light and actually the dust in the air, not even just fog in London at the time. I think when Krakatoa exploded, they felt it even in London. You know, they felt the the very shape of light and the, and then the, and the color of their skies change. And you can see him moving in the direction of abstract expressionism because that's what he needed to get to where he wanted to go. And I just want that from art and from music. And, you know, as, as regards my faith, Brian Eno, uh, whom we work with for, for many years, a crucial part of our story, is an atheist, calls himself an evangelical atheist. <laughs> and Martin Rowe calls him an ambient atheist. They just interviewed him at the Greenbelt Festival. Hmm. But he talked that about you two had that ecstatic music. And that, that joy was a thing that he was really attracted to in gospel music. And that he didn't like a lot of the happy, clappy stuff. But he knew that a certain level of joy couldn't be contrived, you know. And mm -hmm. it's, I tried to explain to him that, you know, one, some of the reasons that we begin worship in a sort of awkward, slightly self-conscious fashion, which is a bit happy, clappy, is that we're we're stepping out of our, circumstance and in and, and in faith away from our feelings into the facts of our of our belief and i love those old choruses i've learned a lot from them. i sing them you know to mm -hmm. i sing them in, in my sleep i sing them i'm very grateful to them and they may not be the hymns of the wesley period or they may not you know shake the foundations like the great psalms as told on a cathedral organ but they're beautiful they're pop songs <laughs> now 
I personally also need the blues because there's much more of the blues in the Bible than there is gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, the, because the entire Old Testament is full of despair and anguish and dark tales. And so what I think is much more crucial in our relationship with God is to be truthful. And though I've learned to step out of myself or to attempt to step out of myself into a place of praise, I also find a good route is just being really, really pissed off <laughs> and, and just allowing my anger. And sometimes it's not uh, righteous, mm-hmm. but it's, it's okay to be upset by the world. It's okay. You should be annoyed. I remember John Smith, the Australian evangelist, I remember him saying, you know, depression is a nerve end sometimes, Mm. you know, it just Mm -hmm. reminds you that everything isn't okay. Mm -hmm. And so with U2's music, we're trying for a sort of full spectrum of feelings. You can have those feelings, you can own up to those feelings, even you know, the eroticism of a With or Without You or a, you know, song for someone or this is part of who we are, you know, part of our aliveness. So that's it. You know, I just wanted the full bandwidth from you two. And we've kind of got it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people might prefer if we went a little more towards the Crimsons or the, <laughs> you know, the kind of uh, cobalt blues. Some people like it when we're down at the, um, you know, the blacks, the monochromes, sort of deep navy blues, but I just like the whole band. I just like the whole spectrum. And and you've said before, I mean, you've kind of lamented in, in other interviews how Christians in the arts, Christians in music in particular, there there is a sense that they they avoid the blues. I think one of the quotes I heard you say at some point is like, I'd really love to hear a Christian artist just talk about their divorce, you know? Um, and these kind of faux pas things that don't get discussed. I, I wonder if you, I wonder if you have thoughts on why that is, why do you think Christian public witness tends to avoid those contrasts? Well, there's good news (laughs) (laughs) and there's even better news. Mm -hmm. Um, it's okay to say there's bad news and we just don't want to dwell on it for too long. We don't want to be swallowed up by it. But we have, to, we have to look at the world and we have to stare at it sometimes. And then we have to build on our response to it. And they don't have to be big, wild sweeps at injustice like I tend to make. Um, they can be just small gestures in our local community or your kid's school or whatever. You know, but we do have to stare at the world and know what's out there. And we have to be able to talk about what's going on in the community. And I remember I went to see a a, a senator. Uh, He was a young senator at the time. And I probably shouldn't mention his name, but but he's gone on to be a sort of national figure in the United States, conservative. And I... I put him on the back foot. I went in, he said, why, why, thank you for visiting my offices in the Senate. Um, 
um, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm here. To, I'm here to speak about Coldplay. I hear you're a f- I hear you're a fan. He went, oh. he went, I, 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 I mean, I, yes, yes, I do like, but I'm, I'm, I'm also a fan of you. I said, I'm only joking. I said, I really am just messing with you. I'm just, but um, I have heard you're a huge Eminem fan. And you, as just as, as a conservative, I'm just, I'm just very interested. You're a religious and a fiscal conservative. How does that, how does, how does I'm just curious, because I'm a fan too of not just his verbal acuity, but I'm just the spirit of a boy. But you're, how do you, how are you a f- such a fan? And he said, he said, you know, I, I just want stuff out. I just want our artists to, to share what's going on in the world. I want it out, even if it's unpleasant and I don't want to hear it. I wish it wasn't in my community, but Eminem just gets it out. And at least we can deal with some of the problems. And I was like, whoa, interesting answer. And, um, and, and I suppose that's what we should want. We, we, we don't want, to, we don't want to, to, you know, we don't want to spend hours on it, but we need a conversation with what's going on in the world. I don't want to be in some blasphemy club, some holy huddle, um, protected away in our niceness. Because Jesus just doesn't come off as nice. That's the biggest secret about Jesus, is that people don't, people don't realize that Jesus wasn't um, nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he really wasn't. Well, especially to you religious know. people. Yeah, as I, you know, um, listen, I'm just, I, I'm, I love what you have to say. You were, that, you were great. That was amazing. <laughs> but I'm just off to, to bury my father and I'll catch up with you later. Uh, let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> Not very nice. Mm-hmm. And piercing, powerful, true. We should be kind. Sometimes it's kind to be truthful. But truth told out of time is, is maybe not kind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I, I, we were very influenced by, I suppose, a group of charismatic Christians in Ireland in the late 70s neither Catholic nor Protestant, kind of living like first century Christians, very radical, very few possessions, not interested in them, and very strong on scripture, and a bit punk rock (laughs) in their (laughs) attitude. And we were like, wow, these people are really radical. And we kind of like them. And they really liked us. But they then found it hard to... um, accept us in the end as artists Hmm. because it was like that wasn't in their plan for how to speak to the world you know it's like how about speaking to god how about just expression no no we have to turn your art into a microsoft um bullet point sales sheet you know it's Mm -hmm. like no and and just to be not to do is I would say what I hear when I listen and I don't always listen. Well, I think what's interesting is that the pressure you describe in the book, I mean, you all almost came off the road after your first tour because of that pressure to sort of conform to a certain ministry, you know, a certain definition of ministry, you know, in the, in the way you describe it in the book, it was almost like, 
you had this confrontation with your manager who just basically said, well, you want to talk about ethics, you know, you're going to break your contract with me and, and, and come on out. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that's true. I, but I, at the same time, I mean, people, people do wild things because of religious conviction all the time. And so there had to be some part of you that just kind of smelled the BS in, you know, this idea that to serve God, it had to be within these narrow parameters that you too couldn't be a, uh, of, uh, the, the way that you were sort of following God's will, right? Like seeking, seeking God in your life. What was that voice like? I mean, there had to be something in your head saying, you know, I, I smell something funny here. Yeah, <laughs> there was, but it, it was, you know, it was serious, you know, people mm-hmm. were, they, they were seriously convicted that we were seriously on the wrong path. And if the thing that's at the heart of who you are is only useful to the world if it's a sales pitch for your version of the divine mystery, it's not good. But we learned a lot there, you know. I don't want to complain too much. Some incredible people who made a huge impression there. And and your question, your original question is, is one, it's worthy of pausing on because, you know, the people who who listen to this podcast and, and read you in Christianity Today, I think deserve a good answer because I'm ready to accept that a large part of you too is religious art, but I'm not ready to accept that we have to be reductionist into what is and what isn't. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. We got this incredible invitation, which was the great Reverend Billy Graham would love to meet the band and and offer a blessing. Hmm. And I know he's a founder of Christianity um, today. Um, I didn't know that then, but I still wanted the blessing. I was trying to convince the band into coming with me. Um, but for various reasons, they couldn't. But I, I just, it was, it was difficult with the schedule, but I just found a way. I found like a little small one of those me planes. <laughs> and we kind of... You know, got he was in the middle of nowhere, I think, in Georgia, mm-hmm. and um, 
And I was going, I wasn't, I wasn't going to meet the laying on of hands from such a, a wise man, you know, and such an elder and such a man of God. But his son Franklin picked me up at the airport and Franklin was doing very uh, effective work with St. Martin's Purse. But he wasn't sure about his cargo on the way <laughs> to meet his father and he kept, you know, asking me questions. Like, you really, you love the Lord? Yep. <laughs> He's driving. And okay, you do. Are you saved? Yep. Um, and saving. <laughs> you know, laugh, no laugh. And do you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior? I said, well, I know Jesus Christ. And I, I, I try not to use him just as my personal savior. <laughs> but, you know, Yes. And he goes, then why aren't your songs um, Christian songs? I said, they are. He said, oh, well, some of them are. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, why don't they, why don't we know they're Christian songs? And I said, they're all coming from a place, um, Franklin. And, and, and I said, just, we were driving through the countryside. And I said, look, look, Franklin, look around you. Look at this, look at, look at the creation, look at the trees as they fly by, look at the sky, look at the, look at the, look at these kind of verdant hills. These trees don't have a sign up, do they? I mean, they're not, they don't have a sign up, you know, praise the Lord or <laughs> I belong to Jesus. They, they, it's creation. They just give glory to God. They don't need the sign up. Why do you need a bumper sticker on everything? And it kind of quieted. It was nice enough to bring me there. But it's an it's an ongoing question. Mm -hmm. And it, I think the problem is literalism. I don't think you can approach God without metaphor. Mm -hmm. The size of God's love, the scale of it. I don't think people can approach without metaphor. And the scriptures are full of it, metaphor. So literalism is a different thing. Literalism comes with fundamentalism. I don't see fundamentalism as any way a kind of description of the depth of your faith. Rather, maybe a more shallow understanding of it. We, it turns out we love to be fundamentalist, market fundamentalist, political fundamentalist, right. Islamic fundamentalist, re religious We... It's, it's not one of our more attractive traits, fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. That's why I think people want to be so reductionist. But the size of God, the scale of the love that is offered to us, and this incredible feeling that, you know, of, of you know, people say, you know, st you're stepping towards judgment. I've never felt less judged than in the company of God. I feel judged when I come out of the company. It's, mm. Conviction is a completely different mechanism to release you from ways that you need to be freed from. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, where is it? Romans, guilt is not of God. There you go. <laughs> it's like, come on. Mm. And people need to, to feel welcome in their place of worship. They really do. And you just don't know if Jesus will be hanging out with these people. 
You know, it's the people who they won't let into the church that Jesus wanted to be around. But I also want to say, just conversely and uh, perversely maybe, I will confess to you that I'm finding myself in churches much more than I thought I would in my earlier life. I'm finding myself attracted to the ceremony and the ritual, the procession, the dance, the liturgy of various faiths. I'm moved. I'm, uh, the last one was uh, really floored me, was Advent in St. Paul's Cathedral. I, I, I mean, it's, it's the greatest show, show on earth. It's free. Just walked in on it. I, I, I've been there now a lot, but mm-hmm. I, I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, they, the, this ancient cathedral, is tur- they turn the, all the lights off. Mm. And this choir, this ghostly choir, arrive singing this fairly avant-garde choral music, I might add, w- and bringing candles and they are the light entering the darkness. Mm-hmm. And you realize these places were built around this word awe that you Americans have ruined. <laughs> awesome. Everything's awesome. <laughs> it's a great word, but you've ruined it. Yeah. And, um, but awe, where would we be without awe? Sense of wonder, as mm-hmm. Van Morrison sings. But now I'm even finding it in little small Sunday services that I sneak in the back of. And I'm really enjoying it. And my family too. So maybe I'm coming around to a much more traditional expression of faith. But as I, I, when I started out, it was much more punk rock. I humbly apologize for that extremely long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's fine. Question. Because I, because I do think, as you say, this is, it's a constant question. Um, it's something the church has wrestled with for for as long as I've been asking some of these questions. And you talked earlier about these confrontations with Jesus that, that aren't quite what we often imagine them. And you talk about seeing creation. I mean, what, what comes to mind to me as well is, you know, God's confrontation with Job. I mean, that is not a, Job has been through all this suffering. He's been sitting there wondering, you know, at some point God's going to show up and explain all of this to me. And God shows up and essentially says, you know, Chesterton's the one I think who, who says, you know, God shows up and goes, who, what makes you think you're going to understand any of this? Look how incomprehensible everything else around you is. But, you know, Chesterton goes on to say, but notice that in the end, there's a satisfaction in Job in having been overwhelmed, having been sort of awestruck by all of these things. The more you, you, you turn to these passages and they're there for you at every age, you know. Um, but yeah, um, it, the hug, <laughs> let's not just turn mm-hmm. Jesus into a hug. <laughs> and sometimes when we're stuck, our back's against the wall, we're in a corner, there's not much light, you know, there's, some, there's a bad smell. Mm-hmm. We don't want a hug. We want a mm-hmm. way out. We want, we want directions. And the wisdom of the scriptures is sometimes tough love, um, for sure. One of the things you say throughout the book, and you've said it a, a couple of times today that, that honestly kind of surprised me. Um, there's a moment where you describe you go see your son 
at a show and, um, you know, you describe his, the joy you take and kind of his comfort on stage and the, the, the freedom you sort of witness. And you say, um, you describe this conversation afterwards and you say, I've never once been myself or I've never once felt like myself, I think is what you say. And, and what's interesting to me about that is you can look at your life and there's, there's kind of this moment around the turn of the century that begins this incredible investment in activism with one and takes you to all of these different places. And it's, it's very consonant with this spirit of like, how long, oh Lord, you know, the activism is very consonant to me with the, the lament and longing in, in your lyrics. And so 20 years into that journey, I guess I feel a little surprised that you don't have a, a bit more of a sense of kind of integration and, and settledness. Um, do you feel like that's come on at all? Or do you still, is the how long, you know, as strong now, or is the, the, the sort of, you, you say the, you know, it's been about the quest, not the destination. Like is the sense of longing for home as powerful now as it was before? Or do you feel more of a sense of home? The the word surrender just still seems out of reach for me. Hmm. You know, it's a, it's a daily struggle to surrender to my bandmates, to my wife, to my maker, and the integratedness that we expect from a person who's been made whole by their faith. I'm, I'm probably missing. <laughs> and um, I have the joy, I have some insights, I have, I have a lot, but I, I don't seem to have that. I mean, I have it more than you'd think, but being comfortable in my skin is what I was talking about, mm -hmm. watching Elijah, our eldest boy, on stage with his band inhaler. I'm, and I'm just see, wow. I said to him once, I said, you know, it's incredible that you're just, you can be yourself on stage, you know, and you don't have to be like this big performer to, to make a big point. And he says, really, you don't think I'm a big performer? I said, no, I wasn't saying that. I, I was just saying, it's just great that you don't have to be so d demonstrative. The next time I saw him, he jumped up on the drum kit. <laughs> and it was like, I think he... He faked an electrocution or something, <laughs> but um, you know the the U two thing on stage is you know we a lot goes in you know we really have to prepare ourselves before we walk out on stage, and you know we we do and we 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 spend time with each other and and we have to pray with and for each other and. It's like, come on, lads, it's just a rock and roll show. Just get over yourself. But we can't do it without that. Even now when I walk out on stage, I was just speaking to my high school yesterday to the sixth year students. I was reading them the book. I wanted to read them some of the book. I was, I was so nervous. And they were, they were so kind to me. It was like, I mean, so, I mean I'm, I'm actually quite an easy case to study. A lot of bluster. A lot of bravura, a lot of front. You know, we kind of know what that is. But I will tell you that deep down, I'm not at all insecure. 
And deep down, there is an anchor. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fixed to a rock. And that rock is Jesus. And the, the, the storms... <laughs> the storms are are mighty and the the water sometimes troubled but you know i can i can just i just you know i, I take in some salt water but i i'm not drowning i really am not I'm, and i will make it to shore i know that i have the confidence that i will get there and like our community will get me there even if i can't my wife will get me there if i can't we'll get each other there does that answer the question? I'm not sure. Oh no, very much. And um, I guess I'm I guess I'm fascinated by it in the sense that you know I talked to Mike Gerson the other day about the book, and mm-hmm. his affection for you is tremendous, which I wanted to share that with you. But one of the things he said about the book that I thought was fascinating was he said, you know, when I read the book, in some ways the main character is Allie um, <laughs> because she is this through line. And so when you talk about your faith, it reminds me of the way she as well is this, this anchor, this rock that you come back to. And there is this, you know, if you want to call it wanderlust or whatever it is that sends you out to make things to, I mean, it takes, it takes an an enormous audacity to walk in front of a crowd of 20,000 people and do what you, you know, what you do. And that restlessness it has to drive anybody. I mean, my friend of mine's an actor who always says, Say you know, it, happy, get well-adjusted. It Mike, it's okay. Yeah, well, you know, he says, a friend of mine says, you know, happy, well-adjusted people don't get into this business, right? <laughs> right. And, and yet, I am fascinated by the fact that you have determined to come back to that rock again and again, the rock of faith, the rock of home, the rock of family. There's something very, Gerson said this as well, in many ways, there's a very small C conservative spirit about it, not in the sense of politics at all, but in the sense of the importance of place, of family, of the institution of marriage and family and home. And so for someone who has such a journey, a, such a wandering spirit in many ways, to have also made such an an emphasis on that in your life and in in the story you write in the book. I just find that fascinating. Yeah, well, Ali and I, I, our relationship is a mystery to us both. (laughs) And and she's a mystery, uh, not just to me, but um, to her children and to people uh, around her. She's, She's extraordinary. And in some ways, I'm, I'm really, I'm just getting to know her. But yeah, I, I, on, on conservatism, can I speak to that for a second? Because Please. I, I just have the deepest respect for so many conservative values. And the thing that turned America around and helped, I think, inspire a conservative president of the United States take up the fight against HIV AIDS and lead the world in what at that time was the greatest, largest intervention in the history of medicine to fight a single disease. Where conservative Christians, we did a tour called the Heart of America Tour, uh, the One Campaign, where I, through the Midwest, where I didn't, I didn't find, 
hillbillies. I didn't find rednecks. I found people with real moral compass. I found people who I will always be friends with and I feel very easy in their company. And I don't think we should allow ourselves into this binary view of the world mm -hmm. between progressive and conservative. I think that's very divisive. And we find common ground by reaching for higher ground. And we were called to this. Mm. And those of us on the left, um, um, I mean, I'm swerving all over the road, just so you know, <laughs> um, uh, politically. I'm, sure. I, I would define myself as a radical center. The radical center. But, you know, the, the, we really want to be careful about the demonizing of each other and having your faith hijacked by politics is something we all need to be really careful of. This beautiful private conversation between you and your faith. And liberals have to learn not to look down on this. I think it was, who was it? Was it Francis Collins who said there's a danger that, you know, liberals just think about um, Christians as just maybe not as smart as them. It says the man who, you know, unlocked the, uh, what was it, the human genomic project, you know, yeah. and ran NIH. Mm -hmm. I think we can, liberals can force progressives into a corner mm -hmm. and then conservatives can demonize progressives. I mean, it just goes around. It's like, it's like the sure. playground. It's quite childish. Yeah. And we have a lot of big kids now in positions of power, and we don't need to get into their names, but we, sure. we know what a child, you know, looks like at the table, who's, you know, the, the child that will have its way or the throw the tantrum and the, and the cot out, out, <laughs> out of the window. And they're, they're all over the, the political spectrum. We're in a, it's a very adolescent mood at the moment. Mm -hmm. We need to get through it to a place of wisdom. And, and I, I think I predict revival. Mm -hmm. I predict that our churches could be filled instead of emptied. But it depends on how they're used. And we have to hope that people will live their faith just preach it. We have to preach it. If you're a preacher, preach it. But if you can't live it, stop. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. 
You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I'd love to talk about what the activism amounted to, because it's amounted to so much. Yeah, please. So again, you know, I'm always giving out about the church. So as I'm speaking to Christianity today, I want to, I want to balance that, mm-hmm. you know, because what can appear as narrow-minded to some, when you widen the aperture of that narrow-minded idealism, I've, I have sometimes spoke disparagingly of evangelicals as narrow-minded idealists. I take that back. Mm-hmm. I learned a real lesson about this with the one campaign, because these evangelicals are the most unbelievable campaigners, whether it comes to climate now or seeing the divinity in the natural world, as well as, you know, homelessness or the people we step over on the way to our office, seeing the divinity there. You know, these it's very inspiring to me. And out of that, we also have, you know, two Septuagarian Christians from England, I think, who worked with the Pope, John Paul II, and a lot of Christian churches across America on the Drop the Debt campaign, Jubilee 2000. Mm-hmm. And there's over 50 million children went to school on the continent of Africa, according to the World Bank, as a result of those debts being cancelled. They were unpayable debts. They were unfair debts. Right. And that, isn't that an amazing thing? And, you know, so often the church is kind of not just second or third, but last in the line of civil rights or last in the line of respecting people's sexuality. But here, Christians were the vanguard. And I just want to say thank you. Hmm. and keep up that service. And yeah, thank you. Well, it's, fu- it's funny you end with thank you because, you know, I, a handful of friends I, I shot a text to this week and said, hey, if you were going to ask Bono a question, what would you ask? And there was a long silence. And to a person, they all came back and said, I don't know what I would ask. I would just want to say thank you. Because oh. I think so much of what you've done in in your music and as well as in your activism, you're the witness of putting yourself in these places, you know, what, what Tim Keller talk, calls the, the spoiling places of the world where salt is a preservative and Christians can come and, and bring life and preserve life in these dying places. That witness of both the places you've taken people in your music. I'm sure you hear it all the time, but I'm also sure that you will probably never fully comprehend what you mean, even to one person who's been moved in the way. And that includes me. Thank you for your time, and um, God bless you, Mike, and all who sail with you. A couple of days after this conversation, I got an email. Bono had been thinking about his time with Billy Graham, and he wanted to share a poem he'd written as a thank you after their conversation. He sent it to Billy Graham at the time. Here he is reading it. The journey from father to friend is all paternal love's end. It was sung in my teenage years in the voice of a preacher, loudly soft on my tears. I would never forget this melody line or its lyric voice that gave my life a rhyme, a meaning that wasn't there before, a child born in dung and straw. 
with the Father's love and desire to explain how we might get on with each other again. I wrote this for the Reverend Billy Graham and his magnificent wife Ruth and all the Graham family in 2002, on March the 11th, when I went to see him to receive a blessing from him. How blessed am I? Like I said at the beginning, this all happened back in October. And I wanted to mention a couple of things that have happened since then. First, I was able to attend Stories of Surrender in Nashville. It was one of a series of events that Bono held around the country in conjunction with the release of the book. The event itself would be hard to describe in just a few words here. It's somewhere between a concert, a one-man show, and a revival. It was extraordinary and unique, and he's going to do a run of performances of it again in the Beacon Theater in New York City later this spring. About a month after that, Michael Gerson passed away after a long battle with cancer. He was the friend Bono and I talked about during the interview, and whom I'd spoken with a few days before that. Michael Gerson was a speechwriter for George W. Bush, and one of the main architects of the movement that was known as compassionate conservatism. He and Bono became friends when they were working together with the Bush administration for AIDS relief in Africa. More recently, Gerson had been a columnist for the Washington Post, where he was a staunch defender of a political and spiritual vision that he'd helped pioneer and saw crumbling around him. He said something about Bono that struck me at this really deep level, kind of reminded me that this was a presidential speechwriter, someone who was deft with words in a way that you don't encounter often. He said, when I think about the journey Bono's been on since I met him, he seems to have fallen in love with the God-blessed givenness of things. That phrase, the God-blessed givenness of things, encapsulates a sense of gratitude that you hear throughout Bono's story, and really, in Gerson's own writing and life. It's a phrase, a vision really, that I don't think I'll ever forget. If you want to read the full cover story I wrote about Bono, the link is in our show notes. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producer, Eric Petrick. Producer and editor, Azure Phelps. Additional editing and operations, Matt Stevens. Music by Dan Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Audio recording by Core Media. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Kate Lucky. I'm Mike Cosper. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.